Welcome to another episode of InfraLogic's Crossroads series of podcasts, the Asia-Pacific edition. My name is Robin Ganguly, and I'm the global executive editor for InfraLogic, which is a combination of information and spark spread. Now, today's focus is on renewables, among the most popular sectors with both readers and users of InfraLogic's database. Now, to put things in perspective, more than $187 billion of deals closed in the five years through June this year. Now, that's in the Asia-Pacific renewable sector. Now, globally, the figure was $1.1 trillion. Now, we will present some forward-looking data later on in this program as well. Now, one of the leaders of that massive push is BlackRock, whose assets pushed past $9 trillion in the first quarter of this year. Now, I have with me today Dr. Valerie Speth, co-lead APAC for the Climate Infrastructure Group, which invests and manages investments and portfolio companies of the $4.8 billion Global Renewable Power Fund 3, as well as a $673 million Climate Finance Partnership. Now, she brings more than 15 years of experience in the renewable power sector, both in Europe and the Asia-Pacific region. Now, Valerie, welcome to the program. I also have with me Celine Ge, who is the Greater China Editor at InfraLogic. Valerie, welcome once again. And to begin the program, if you could say a few words to introduce yourself to our global audience. Yeah, very happy to be here today. So as mentioned before, I'm one of these renewable energy pioneers starting in Europe 15 years ago when the industry was still very small, you know, and just a couple of people working there. And then I worked many years in a startup and grew from 300 to 3000 people. I worked for big utilities in Europe and then also as the CEO in, for a renewable energy company here in Asia for five years before I joined two years ago, BlackRock and, and did a move from the operational business into the financing sector. Now, that's quite the resume. I've been following you on LinkedIn for a while and I know you wear many different hats. You also have 40 under 40 in uh, in Germany, am I right? Yes, correct, correct. Three years in a row, so <laughs> it's a great community. You know, also a lot of impact leaders, and I've seen even that crowd, you know, change over time. More and more people focusing on uh, green energy and the transition uh, to net zero. You know, Valerie, you know, you being based in Singapore, that gives you quite a very interesting perspective on the whole of the Asia-Pacific market. Now, to start off the program, I'm going to ask you the first question of the day. One is particularly key for our listeners and viewers. Now, which sectors in power and energy do you think present the biggest opportunities? Now, this I'm talking about emerging uh, emerging Asian Asian markets. I think at the moment, you know, we have the biggest investment opportunity ahead of us. I think the numbers are really big. The latest number was 4.7 trillion until 2040, which is a very big number, right? And it's difficult to understand what that really means. But I think the overall, the energy power sector has two really great pillars. Like the first one, it really adds diversification and it can mitigate risk, you know, when you add it into a portfolio. And even lately, the market has been stressed 
we see that it shows kind of commonality with fixed income. And that means it allows for our um, investors to give them some downside risk protection. And then the second point is infrastructure really has an impact. So it has a positive impact by producing green energy. We also want to be mindful, you know, of inherently local in nature, and it allows jobs to be in rural areas as well. So I think overall here in the region, we have seen a lot of opportunities along the entire value chain, and we see really good deal flow. So in the last two years, we have been investing more than $2.5 in climate infrastructure here in Asia. And that is in a platform in Korea when we invested in wind and solar, in Japan in solar power, in Taiwan in solar and also added to the portfolio you're now EV charging and battery. In Australia, we have also EV charging and battery company and New Zealand solar. And these countries, you know, they're driven still at the moment by pretty strong government frameworks. Then when you venture a bit into the non-OECD countries, lately you have seen, you know, institutions that raised impact funds, more and more impact funds. And then on the, on the other hand, you also saw that manufacturing has moved from uh, other locations into Malaysia, Vietnam, Philippines. So in giving the current volatility, these companies and the manufacturing, they require independent um, uh, independent sources for electricity because they have been exposed to a lot of volatility lately on the electricity prices. That means in non-OECD countries, even though you might not have a very strong underlining government um, regulation, now it's pretty much market-driven. And we are supporting that through one of our vehicles. It's called the Climate Finance Partnership. And is a public-private planned finance instrument where we have already done our first investment, which was in the Philippines. And there will be a couple more deals coming this year. So very excited, you know, to do more in the non-OECD region. Oh, that's very exciting because, you know, we've seen, uh, especially in Southeast Asia, a lot of potential in India, massive potential, especially in in renewables, China, you know, people have been uh, watching very, very carefully, but we haven't seen an explosion of investments as well. And interesting, you should bring up PPPs. You know, we're having the US P3 conference on the 13th and 14th of June. I'll be heading there. Um, you know, we hope to have a lot of very interesting discussions. Now, Valerie, just putting your, uh, just looking at what you said about massive uh, opportunity investments. So Celine and I were looking at, you know, data on our Interlogic platform and that we saw, uh, we're just looking at live deals in the Asia Pacific region, not just the live deals in renewables. Now, it's a pipeline of about $290 billion. Now, many of these deal values have not yet uh, you know, come inside. We don't even have some of the, the dollar figures as yet. So that figure is likely to get substantially larger. And then we also saw the growth of emerging Asian markets in renewables with, for instance, the renewables deals in both China and Vietnam increasing. Now, this is testament to just what, what you mentioned as well. Now, you know, staying with that particular theme, with the emerging markets theme, you know, we've seen some developments over the past few years, few months. For instance, the Philippines has eased foreign ownership limits and Vietnam has brought up this new power plant pushing renewables energy. Now, do you see this as creating opportunity all around 
or do substantial challenges still remain? So that's my question. And a follow-up would be, how about opportunities in, say, for instance, Indonesia? I think here in Southeast Asia, there has always been a very strong appetite for high-quality bankable projects. And there's also very competitive local capital available, which shows again (laughs) my first point that even though we might have the current difficult market conditions, infrastructure has proven again resilience in the space. So for to invest in Southeast Asia, overall, if you compare to other countries, your setup costs are always a bit higher. And often you don't have like very strong government support. And that means you need to think about, you know, how you're going to make these deals scalable. And everybody has to get comfortable with the risk that we face because this risk is a bit different. People might not be that familiar with it. And in my opinion, it's very important to have operational experience to de-risk these deals. So what we have seen, you know, is that I think that one challenge for investors is to originate attractive investable renewable projects. And for sure, that's not easy and that's not straightforward because it needs a local network. And you also need to have experienced local developers that allow you to operate to the quality standards that you want to meet. And they are most often, you know, international standards that are required for investors. I think overall, it's great that, especially in the last years, and I think after COVID, Southeast Asia needed a bit to recover, but now we've seen that many countries have pledged, right, and committed to targets in the mid to long term. And I think the Philippines, you know, mo- one of the most liberalized um, markets here in Southeast Asia, allows a lot of different paths into the market. So there's auctions, right? And it took a while to set up this new system, which is also digital, which allows also to scale up different projects. It allows the development cycle to be shorter. You have other options um, to the market just taking the merchant or contracting with a direct off-taker. So in my opinion, that that different requirement now, not the 40% anymore, that will probably bring a really big push, a, a big push into the renewable sector in the Philippines. For Vietnam, I think many of us have been waiting for follow-up regulation because there's such a big growth in the years where the feed-in tariff scheme was active. So basically, entire Southeast Asia you met in Vietnam, right? And it's amazing how many gigawatts per year they're built. So we're all happy that there's been now the new regulatory framework. And I think in the next couple of months, everyone will have to look at it and define, you know, what is the technology I think I want to invest in and what is the path for us. But I think it allows investors to have an opinion, you know, what should be a high quality um, renewable power project and what are the technologies that will, will be pushed in the mid to long term. So for Indonesia, Indonesia is also committed to net zero, right? And it has defined a five plan step, how they're going to get there. I think they have 
currently thought, have a lot of thoughts around what to do with their coal plants and how to retire them early. And they are open for investments. So yesterday I've been to um, a dinner uh, where a minister just said, you know, we're ready. We really want to do it. And we invite everybody to come with very good solutions. And also it was outlined, it's not only the renewable piece, it's also nature-based solution to absorb emissions because it's the third largest country after Brazil and China that can actually absorb, uh, absorb most of the CO2 with forest rehabilitation. I think everybody, you know, doesn't matter which industry, which country, policy, we all have to work together to get this done because probably it's not going to be an easy path, but I think as long as people want to solve problems with steps, we're going to get there. So this is actually a very interesting opportunity for us to segue into the question that Celine is going to ask you. But I just wanted to quickly follow up on that. You mentioned scalability. Scalability, many of the investors I've spoken with over the past year, year and a half, they have mentioned that there is quite the challenge as far as Southeast Asia concerning scalability as compared to other places such as India, for instance, South Asia, for instance. Do you see that to be true or things getting better in Southeast Asia? I think overall it's true. I also think, you know, you can make things scalable if you bring an operational lens, right? Because if you're start a company, you have different business model. If you diversify into different countries, you allow a company to tap into opportunities, windows of opportunities that open up because of regulation or because of a different movement in electricity prices. So in my opinion, you can create scalability. It can either come from diversifying in different regions. It can come from diversifying in different business models. And it can come from operational experience and excellence because you need to mainstream your processes as you have to do it in any industry to create scale and reduce cost per kilowatt that you build in a renewable space. That's Super, super interesting, Valeria. Thanks for giving us such a, a frank and honest assessment of the situation. Now, just bringing in uh, Celine. Celine, you had a question for Valerie. Go ahead. Hi, Valerie. So uh, BlackRock, as we have seen, uh, has opted to invest in local platforms, such as in Taiwan and South Korea. So would you consider a similar approach for emerging Asian markets? Yeah, thanks a lot, Celine. So... I think here I want to go back a bit into uh, the strategy that is behind this, right? So like for us, we also like scalability, but we feel comfortable with taking development risk because we know how to de-risk it. And that's the reason why we invest in platforms to have the ability to step in and then do follow-ups because at one point, these infrastructure players, they will require a lot of capital. And then once it comes, you know, it allows us to deploy either more of our capital or it also allows us to bring co-investors in and build even a bigger platform. So I think the approach of investing into platforms has also a de-risking factor because you're diversified. You can aggregate below one platform different business models, and you could even let different platforms with different skills work together. 
And we've seen that in the OECD markets where we see different cycles of the business model. So let's take just one example, right? There might be one company that is really good in uh, building batteries. But then in another country, that business model is not that mature. So it's actually not the technical skill to do that. What it allows us is to connect these two and let the technical skill help, you know, in another country to ramp up that business model as well. And I think this approach works also really well for Southeast Asia. And it could even work, you know, across a portfolio where you have OECD and non-OECD countries together. Because in this case, you would also de-risk different currencies, different business models, and you could learn from each other because you might be in different points in your life cycle. You know, I wanted to just touch on the, uh, you know, Celine brought this up as well. And you brought it up previously as well, local partnerships with local developers, right? So how important is it in a region like Southeast Asia? Or is there any particular region in, in the whole of Asia Pacific that you think is more key than in others to have local partners? Yeah, I think like creating a successful business has always two main pillars. The first one is being very local, right? These things are in a local language and you have different culture. So in my opinion, a successful developer is fully embedded in the network of that local country. And then you match this with international experience. And I think for us as international investors, it's our responsibility to help with that piece, right? Because if you, let's say, take an example, we have a small local developer and maybe the volume they buy for equipment is not that high. That means for every time they buy, they don't get an ideal price, right? But if we pool a lot of these companies together, we can get a better price for each of them, which is the benefit for all of their businesses. Same point is with terms like negotiation, different terms, because like equipment is not only about the price, right? It also needs to come with quality and um, other elements. So even there, your negotiation power is different if you're a local um, small company versus if you have like a couple of them combined and a bigger voice. Then I think the third part of, of being international, which is also important, is like optimizing all your financing solutions, right? Because these projects run on 70% on leverage. That means like the bigger the volume you can negotiate, the better financing terms you will get as well. And then the third one, currently, you know, all our funds are Article 9 funds. And in our blended finance instrument, we have a very, very strong ESG framework. And that's what is our responsibility is to bring that ESG in Article 9 into all our investments, because we believe moving forward, their value will increase a lot to deliver, to report on, um, on these standards. So I think a combination of being very local, very embedded, very good network combined with international best practices is probably the best foundation for a company to grow and scale up. A very sound advice in my opinion as well. I've been covering this region for about 
20 years, and I couldn't agree more with you, Valerie. Now, moving on to you know, renewables development. Now, do you see any opportunities as, as a result of Malaysia's decision to allow exports of renewable power to other countries, including specifically Singapore, for instance? Yeah, I think it was really good to see. I mean, the Singapore tender, right, has been announced some while ago. But in my opinion, at least, uh, I mean, I've lived here six years now and I'm always impressed. Even though I'm German, you know, we plan a lot. But I think Singapore is still a different level. So in my opinion, I'm very convinced that this will happen at one point of time, right? And it should happen wherever you find the cheapest cost of energy. And there are different countries that are very close to Singapore. And I think all of them are in a really great position to uh, um, build renewable power and deliver it to Singapore's industry. In my opinion, you know, there's a win-win, right? Because it doesn't matter if it's Malaysia or Indonesia or it can be Laos, Vietnam. There's a lot of discussion around where will it come from. But it will create then locally jobs, right? And also that value creation will be in these countries, which I think is really powerful. And then having an off-taker Singapore, which is very creditworthy, I believe the financing industry will be very exciting, uh, excited about this big, large-scale projects. Thanks for that, Valerie. And then, you know, what you were mentioning kind of hit home because I lived in Singapore, as you know, for about eight years from, I think, the year 2001 to 2008, December. And I did see the, you know, the extensive planning. That was a time when Lee Kuan Yew was minister, mentor, uh, Go Chok Tong was a prime minister, and much before the days when, before the days when Lee Sien Lung became became prime minister we see that a lot of planning happening in singapore which actually is is uh, is quite good it gives you a lot of policy uncertainty and now moving on to to something else valerie i know you follow the market very very closely now while a tightening interest rate environment has crimped lending somewhat the, i see the project finance market appearing to be fairly insulated from this and it is definitely open for business i've spoken to to many investors and people smarter than me as far as knowledge about the debt market is concerned and they're saying that the tightening interest rate environment hasn't really affected the project finance market now looking at also the inflationary environment how does blackrock see this impacting infrastructure investments as a whole yeah, thanks a lot for the question. So we're actually thinking a lot about um, the current environment. And I think the first point I want to point out is that infrastructure provides very stable income, no matter of the economic cycle, because most of this is contracted in the mid to the long term. So overall, it tends to perform very well in this environment. And often, these contracts are also inflation protected. And if you look at historical, uh, historical data, it has pretty much outperformed the traditional asset class in periods where you see high inflation. So for the investments we make, right, we go in very early stage, but then the costs are not locked in 
an LCD offtake is not logged in. That means at that point of time, when you log in the costs, you can take the current view of the environment at that point of time and sign an offtake agreement where you either link it to inflation or where you find a very beneficial way for you to, um, to levelize this out. So I think overall, coming back to my earlier point, it really di diversifies your portfolio and still, you know, being the same that almost you see in a fixed income product. So even though we are, we are talking a lot about in inflation at the moment, I have not seen deal flow slow down. I think the demand still for good, high quality products, projects, and even companies is still very high. I think the number of transactions has gone down a bit, but I think you see still premiums are paid for um, opportunities that provide high upside and provide really good projects on a continuous basis. So, I mean, just a quick follow-up on that one. If I read this right, so what you're saying is basically that uh, high-quality assets still demand, uh, still have, will have no trouble getting financing even in a high interest rate environment, even in a tightening market. But overall, do you see that while, you know, while margins may be squeezed a little bit, do you see this as an opportunity for some people to slightly de-risk, for instance? Are they becoming more concerned about the quality of about the quality of projects? Yeah, I would agree with that statement. I think now investors look a lot more into project pipelines, right? I mean, for existing projects, it's very easy to evaluate what is the offtake, like what's the currency, how good is that asset technically. I think for pipelines in the past, it was very easy to look at the pipelines and give them a high value. But I think now people look, or investors look a lot more in detail and evaluate, you know, how far are these projects developed and what kind of value can we assign to them? So what is actually that pull-through rate in a project pipeline? Uh, Valerie, this has been an ex excellent uh, conversation. But before I let you go, um, I'm just going to put you on the spot a little bit. Looking at Asia EM, for instance, top three destinations that you think as far as investments are concerned, as in potential returns on, on investment. Yeah, so I think like in, in my opinion, you need a diversified approach, right? Like for me, I really like the Philippines. Uh, I think you cannot ignore Vietnam because it's just a very, very big market. And then I'm also very interested in the large scale tender that will come up for Singapore. So I'm really looking forward, you know, to see this combination of countries moving forward and doing more renewable power projects. Now that's good to hear. This is an opinion shared by by several smart people in the industry. Valerie, thank you so much for talking to us. Um, I'm based in Hong Kong, so I'm assuming that you will visit Hong Kong from Singapore at some point. Love to meet, have a cup of coffee and talk infrastructure. Thank you very much, Valerie, for joining us. That sounds wonderful. Thank you very much.